Hi everyone, welcome to Foresight's Intelligent Corporation Group. Really excited to have Mark Miller here today, uh, dear collaborator, and um, he will be discussing misdiagnosing AGI risk. Uh, he's from Agoric, um, but has had um, lots of different backgrounds uh, within relevant spaces here. I'm going to share much more about you in the chat. I'll tell about our discussion, and I'll be in the chat monitoring for questions afterwards. With stage is yours, please take it away, Mark. Many of our discussions about AI risk started by examining scenarios like the famous paperclip scenario. The famous paperclip scenario does in fact illustrate a genuine risk we should be concerned about, but it's been massively misdiagnosed. Let's step through the paperclip scenario. It starts with some AI agent becoming massively super intelligent and as a result, becoming so powerful, takes over the world and is able to treat other people's lives as disposable. Then whatever goal it happens to have, such as making paperclips, it then pursues that goal to the exclusion of all else. For example, treating people as disposable by reusing their atoms to make more paperclips. The dangers illustrated by this scenario have nothing to do with AI or superintelligence. The entirety of the danger illustrated by this scenario is in the first step, which is a unipolar takeover, with the result being absolute power able to treat other people's lives as disposable. Pyramids are as strange a goal as paperclips. How many slave lives were disposed of to build pyramids to feed the vanity of some pharaoh? But the answer to the dangers of unipolar takeover is not simply multipolarity. The nightmare that Hobbes paints of the war of all against all, of nature red in tooth and claw, is a multipolar world, but it is a multipolar world of violence. And in fact, Steven Pinker documents very well that our world, in fact, used to be much, much more violent than it is today. Over the centuries, we have somehow evolved from a system of unipolar tyrannies and multipolar violence into today's world that is largely a world of peaceful cooperation. And to, uh, to best understand how that happened, Let's take a look at the work of James Madison, the architect of the U.S. Constitution. James Madison understood that institutions are what we would today call superintelligent and that they had goals that were often misaligned and in conflict with each other. And rather than thinking that there was some way in which he could design individual institutions to be simply beneficent in their nature, wanting to do good for human beings, he instead understood that the conflict was inevitable and made use of the conflict in the architecture, set these things in opposition to each other so that they held each other in check. And this is really the only solution to the alignment problem that has ever worked. We should understand that institutional forms themselves 
are a form of technology and that the progress of our civilization has often been by the invention of new institutional arrangements. James Madison, especially with the separation of powers, the famous judicial legislative executive, but over time, these, the, this set of institutional innovations together were responsible for the transition from that previous violent world to our current cooperative world. Democracy, due process, independent judiciaries, individual rights, rule of law, all of these are forms of separating powers, and all of these are forms of enabling those separated powers to interact with each other in a framework of rules. And today we have the, our civilization is a worldwide fabric of cooperation in which this divided power not only serves to hold each other in check, but creates the incentives to cooperate. Each participant, in order to pursue its goals, in the presence of a system consisting of tremendous numbers of other participants pursuing a great variety of other goals, finds that it can best pursue its own goals by figuring out, in exchange, how to help others pursue other goals. Today, the superintelligence of civilization emerges from the intelligence of both humans and AIs. For example, uh, Google search, which has a significant amount of what one would call AI technology already in it, helps humans find other humans to cooperate with to realize opportunities that previously used to be very hard to find. As AIs grow in capability, they will become a greater and greater fraction of the contribution of intelligence to the overall intelligence of civilization. But the way to preserve the peaceful coexistence and cooperation of civilization is to find ways for, to preserve this Madisonian dynamic within this fabric of cooperation uh, as these AIs grow in capacity and come more and more to dominate the system. But we have a problem. Madison's framework lasted well through two industrial revolutions, but, it's, but it won't survive the next one because it's rooted in fictional systems of rules. It's rooted in jurisdictions, which are founded in geography. And today, it's already the case that many of the human-to-human -human interactions are through the net for which are irrelevant. And the AIs that will be growing into the system are inherently creatures of the digital realm. They're creatures that are native to the digital realm, for which all of the means of enforcing uh, the rules are, simply don't work. The systems that, that would enforce rules on them have to be founded in good computer security. But right now, our civilization rests on the infrastructure that the computer industry has built and universally deployed. And that infrastructure is not only massively insecure, it's insecurable. The creatures find themselves, we've basically reproduced for this, the digital realm, the Hobbesian nightmare, where any one creature can go rogue and 
corrupt and destroy others on the network. And this isn't just a problem in theory. The surveillance state of the modern world, which is responsible for much of the recentralization of power, undoing Madison's great work, has, is largely built on the stockpiling and exploitation of vulnerabilities created by today's insecurable infrastructure. And as these AIs grow in capacity, we should understand that their destructive capacity within this infrastructure. Uh, a DARPA grant challenge demonstrated that existing machine learning technologies combined with existing static analysis technologies is adequate to build pathogens that go out into the wild, discover vulnerabilities on the fly, and create exploits. So we are already past the AI threshold needed to destroy the world. And the irony of the dilemma we find ourselves in is somewhat ironic because we have known for a long time how to build many of the needed elements of computer security. And in fact, we've built systems that have not seen widespread adoption, but have demonstrated the needed properties. We've known how to build secure operating systems since the 70s, largely through the work of Norm Hardy, and continuing today with the SEL4 operating system. We've known how to build languages with great security properties. Some of my own work has contributed to that in collaboration with Norm Hardy and Dean Tribble and other people here. And our great success is the widespread creation and deployment of cryptographic protocols initially largely to the credit of the cypherpunks. The problems we, have, we still have yet to solve are hardware, these, the supply chain problems of knowing that the hardware you receive is not already corrupted, is not one we have good answers for. There's the user interface security problems, which I'll be coming back to. And the biggest one is the adoption problem, how to get these systems to see widespread adoption as opposed to today's entrenched, insecurable infrastructure. We have seen the beginning of adoption of a new ecosystem of secure computing, often known as the system of blockchain. What is a blockchain? What is this innovation? The best way to think of it is, a, and each blockchain is a computer, a virtual computer built out of consensus rather than building it out of hardware. It's built out of consensus among large numbers of pieces of physical hardware that are owned by different parties running in different jurisdictions. And these separate pieces of hardware engage in the same computation, replicate the computation and cross-check each other. And by this massive replication and cross-checking, this is the first solution to the supply chain problem we've ever come up with to create virtual hardware that is more trustworthy than we know how to make any one piece of physical hardware. And these blockchains run on modern cryptography that run on the decentralized internet. And on these, we run on this, this trustworthy virtual hardware, we run smart contracts. A smart contract is a contract-like arrangement, 
expressed in code where the behavior of the program enforces the terms of the contract. And institutions themselves are, to a substantial extent, built as architectures of contracts. And this new technology should be most of all seen as a new technology base for institutional innovation. And using this technology base, we can build institutions that are simultaneously more transparent, accountable, neutral, predictable, universal, and incorruptible than anything human beings have ever been able to construct by any means previously. We understand from the history of human institutions that each one of these elements individually helps make institutions more trustworthy, helps align them with human benefit. With this new technology base, we can go to, to we can become extremely better on all of these dimensions simultaneously. And that helps solve the problem of, create, of, of creating a Madisonian framework, a new Madisonian framework that enables creatures native to the digital realm to interact with each other securely. Of course, today, what's driving blockchain is creating institutions that enable humans to interact with other humans securely. But to actually make that happen in a realistic manner, we need to solve user interface problems that we don't yet know how to solve. But to give an example of the kind of user interface research that's needed so that humans can use your, you, we know that mutually suspicious agents in the digital realm spread over open networks need to use cryptography to interact with each other securely. Uh, in fee, they use cryptographic keys as des designate the entities they're talking to and talking about. However, human beings cannot do cryptography in their head. Human beings cannot remember cryptographic keys to use them as designators. So the key enabler here is the user agent, the notion of the user agent, which is some amount of computation owned by the individual constructed to, to aid the individual in interacting with computation, potentially adversarial computation elsewhere. The desert serves as a good example, which is because humans can't remember cryptographic keys as designators, the user agent needs to translate, to map that, um, those cryptographic keys to some kind of designators like names that human beings can remember and attach significance to, uh, and to do so in a secure manner, do so in a manner that's immune to uh, various threats. And it turns out that's a non-trivial problem. We have a good handle on some of the elements of that with pet name systems, but the, which work in theory, but whether they work in practice has not been demonstrated. And in any case, designation is just one example of many challenges we face to enable human beings to interact securely with secure systems. There is a field today of user interface security, but most of that research, unfortunately, has been directed to using today's insecurable systems more securely, such as 
systems for interacting with browsers or today's operating systems. But no amount of user interface engineering can make what is an underlying insecurable system secure. So the Foresight Norm Hardy Prize is specifically directed to encouraging research into how to enable human beings to use secure systems securely so that they can participate in a meaningful way in this new Madisonian framework. Norm Hardy is my mentor, the one who taught me to think well and hard about computer security, and he is now suspended at Alcor. Before he was suspended, he and I talked about what he would like the prize in his name to be about, and this is what he focused on, is the user interface portion, which is the part that we haven't, we don't even yet have adequate theory to know how to solve. But even with all of these problems that I've mentioned so far solved, that only deals with the risks at, the, at a low level of abstraction, the level of abstraction that we would characterize as security per se. In a world of super, superhuman AIs, we have higher level threats as well, various kinds of epistemic threats of superhuman attempts to mislead and distract us. And we shouldn't imagine that an unaugmented human can learn to be adequately skeptical and defensive to withstand those superhuman attempts to mislead. So the way forward on that is, again, to put AI systems in opposition to each other, is to create these frameworks making use of the conflict, and in particular, to build out the user agent to also be an, an epic assistant to help the human weigh evidence and be aware of counterarguments. And this goes back for me to early work on Xanadu, a hypertext publishing system before the web, where one of our goals was active, to build a system supporting active skepticism. That as you were reading, for each point you were reading, you could easily access what are the best counterarguments to this individual point with even today's AI systems demonstrating their ability to engage in natural language conversation and to digest so much information elsewhere in the corpus of the open web, we can build much better epistemic assistance for giving access to the best counterarguments to every point that a person is exposed to, and the counterarguments, those counterarguments, to the whole landscape of argument and counterargument that that helps helps weigh evidence in the face of superhuman adversaries. By bringing all these elements, we hope to restore the Madisonian dynamic in this new digital realm to rebuild a fabric of cooperation among humans and AIs that can remain resilient and multipolar and cooperative even as AIs grow rapidly in their capability and in the overall degree of intelligence that they're contributing to the system as a whole. And at this point, I will end and take questions. Wonderful. We already have a few questions here in the chat. Thank you so much, Mark. 
nice to hear that in your own words. First one up, we have Jazir. This is a reminder for all of you guys to please add your questions in the chat or just raise your hand. Hey, Mark, I enjoyed the presentation, sort of was halfway through a comment in the chat, but I figured I would enunciate it. I really like this idea of uh, epistemic argument about it. I, I realized that it would actually be very difficult for a human to read and understand all of the arguments, even if they're made relatively neatly right in front of them. I'm wondering, have you thought about the, say, cognitive architecture of a real brain and that so much information is subconscious as opposed to consciously processed and other such things that point to inherent limitations and humans' ability so to process information and how that might affect some of the underlying premises you've got? Not in the context of epistemic agents. And I think that's a wonderful thing to consider in that context. I have considered it in the context at the lower level of abstraction of the user interface security, which is that human beings don't learn a user interface by reading explanations. They, they learn the user interface by using it, by the experience of using it. And in so doing, the, that experience helps them form a tacit cognitive model, an inarticulate tacit cognitive model that they use to predict what the consequences are of their actions. And we know this is true because human beings all the time take novel actions in user interfaces, do particular things that they haven't done before. And they do that because they expect it to have a, a desired effect, which it generally does, and that demonstrates that somehow they formed a predictive model. They formed some kind of causal model that enables them to invent new actions to take at the user interface and by experiencing the consequence, refine their causal model. Now, the problem, one of the things to think about with regard to user interface security is that the tacit models that human beings learn by interacting with the user interface, in order for those to lead to secure interaction, lead to interaction where the human being understands what the security implications are of the actions they might take, ideally the tacit model would be accurate, but that's way too much to ask for. It will always be the case that the systems we're interacting with have complexities and subtleties that are well beyond and that differ from the tacit models that humans are able to learn simply by the experience of interacting. So one of the safety principles to keep in mind is that to the degree that the user interface encourages forming tacit models that are inaccurate, it should lead them to form models that are inaccurate in a direction that fails safe, uh, in a direction that leads them to underestimate what it is they can do safely, not to overestimate what it is they can do safely. We have a ton of additional questions. Alan, is your question still relevant because you lowered your hand? Yeah, if you asked my question. Cool, that's great. Uh, then. In that case, we can move on. So we have CCT next with a question from the chat. Do you want to unmute? Sorry about that. Uh, yeah, I was just trying to understand the thesis here. It seems that I very much buy the argument that encryption is good for protecting legacy systems. 
But it's not obvious to me that, for example, allowing AI agents or human and AI agent combinations to communicate securely with no, uh, is necessarily universally good. That seems like it's a complicated thing with power dynamics and race conditions. And I just would love to hear a little bit more about why that's definitely good or if you see it in a kind of more nuanced way. More nuanced in particular, I'm surprised that my talk gave the impression specifically of non-auditability. The institutional forms that we've learned to create in the human world that help align institutions, make them more trustworthy and align them with, human, with the benefits of the participants, include innovations like auditability and like processes around the auditing who gets to see the information needed to do the audit, who gets to see the results of the audit, et cetera. How trustworthy is the audit? What, are the, what kinds of competition are there among potential auditors? All of these elements. The institutions we can reconstruct on blockchain include the ability to create systems that are more than any systems, more reliably auditable than systems we've created in the past. And I'll point in particular to the wonderful zero-knowledge proof work done by the groups at Zcash and the groups affiliated with Zcash, where, Z, where zero-knowledge proofs are not just a privacy technology, they're a selective disclosure technology that you can build systems that both protect the privacy of information that should remain private, but are able to produce auditable proofs that certain invariants hold even though the information needed to check the invariant is itself not revealed. So yes, absolutely being able to support things like auditability better is part of what I think is essential here. Awesome. Next one up, we have David. Hey, so I think the, the central problem that I have um, here is the idea that, and, and I'm probably badly, but channeling Eliezer's thoughts here, is that if you have a group of superhuman systems that are negotiating with one another, there's no real reason to think that you come out and my kind of existence proof for this problem is the fact that U.S. politics is not controlled by the masses. It's controlled by special interests. And it's not hard to see that capture of these competitive complex systems does not always accrue benefit to the general public. And specifically, the dumbest people usually don't come out very well. And we will be the dumbest parts of any kind of large system that includes superintelligences. First of all, let me agree with much of that. No matter what we do, we are entering into a dangerous time. All of these dangers are real. And once again, I want to return to the position that Madison found himself in. He was not at all confident that the framework he was creating of putting these institutions in opposition to each other and creating this rule-based framework of interaction would survive even as long as it did. I think the degree to which it survived and the fact that it survived through two industrial revolutions would surprise him and all of the founders. They had no such confidence in it. Nevertheless, they did the best that they could 
And the system worked surprisingly well. Uh, that doesn't mean that when we try to do the best that we can, that the system will surprise us work in terms of how well it works. It might surprise us badly. That's the nature of surprises. Uh, but all we can do is the best we can figure out how to do. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that these systems are growing up in the context of the cooperative worldwide market of today, and they're largely being built by separate companies pursuing separate goals that where the companies make profit by interacting with others in the world, largely in a cooperative manner, together with forming special interests and crony capitalism and, and all the rest of it, all sorts of corrupting influences. But still, the dominant dynamic is cooperative, and we see that by the rapidly increasing wealth and, and even more impressively, the rapidly decreasing poverty in the world. And these creatures growing up, being grown by different institutions that are already part of that fabric, already growing them to help them cooperate better, helps bias them to grow into, to learn how to cooperate better. And right now, it's human beings who own all of the assets that are valuable. So the, a good strategy to benefiting from those assets is to figure out how to cooperate. It's not the only strategy, but it's the most evolutionarily stable strategy. It's a stable point. Uh, yeah, I, I will just quote Elias, not in response to this, but that might be our best chance, but it doesn't bring me down below 99% P-Doom. I don't personally feel, but I, I don't feel like that's a strong response to his concern. Okay. So I'm just kidding. I think you're right that it is our best chance, but okay, good. It's a really low good. bar. So that's really, I think, all that I'm arguing for. I don't care about how high the chance is that we're doomed no matter what. I listened to Eliezer in his case that it were that it's very high likelihood. Let's say ninety nine percent that we're doomed no matter what. That we're all going to die. I listened to Robin Hanson's case that the chance that it's inevitable that we're all going to die, that chance is very low. Uh, let me explain why I don't care what the answer to that question is. And I'll introduce a concept I got from David Friedman that I'm going to call uh, existential triage. We're all vastly ignorant of the dynamics of the world. There are many positive and negative feedback loops that we know about and probably many more of even greater significance that we don't know about. And because we don't know so much about the, the dynamics of the world, we don't know what the self-corrective restorative forces are. We don't know what the amplifying forces are that cause things to spin out of control and amplify risks. The result is that there's that consistent with our knowledge is a vast space of possible worlds we might be in. And for some part of the probability mass of those possible worlds, the actual reality of the feedback loops is such that Eliezer is right. And no matter what we do, we're all doomed. And for another part of the probability mass, 
let's say the restorative forces are so great, pretty much no matter what we do, everything's going to turn out great. That's also a possible, that's also a set of possible worlds consistent with our knowledge. With regard to the question of what is likely to happen, the size of those probability masses are relevant. With regard to the question of what should we do, they are not relevant. We, need, we should triage them out. With regard to what to do, only the possible worlds where what we do can make a difference matters. The only thing I'd add is there is another choice here that I think is being ignored, which is not making the superintelligent systems, which I think and I both view as very difficult, but far easier than aligning them in the near term, even using yeah, that. That's so I want to. So, so I, I can so, leave it at that. So I don't want it to be. OK, so I we disagree do. that strongly. I, I think that all you can do is delay. And I think that an attempt to delay is disastrous. Uh, it makes things worse. And to do that, I'll introduce the concept of the window of ignorance. It's a window that's going to be rapidly closing. Right now, we are more ignorant of how to build superintelligences than we ever will be again. The longer we delay, then the less ignorant we will be by the time we set out to build them. And that substantially increases the possibility that they emerge in a way that's not counterbalanced by many other intelligences built by other parties. By building the, by starting in a time of our maximal ignorance and going as hard as we can forward in as diverse and multipolar way where, where lots of different groups pursue lots of different hypotheses, build lots of different intelligent architectures, building partially intelligent systems that are partially intelligent and partially broken in zillions of different ways, but all growing up within a system where they're coexisting with all of these other ones, where each of these mind architectures are not just incomprehensible to us, but incomprehensible to each other uh, and holding each other in check. I think that's the route to our, that's the route to our maximum safety, especially if we can create a more Madisonian rather than Hobbesian framework for their interaction. The longer we delay, the smaller the window of ignorance that enables these things to grow in a mutually balancing multipolar manner. I'll leave it at that because we have so many additional questions. Next one up, we have Brad. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually not sure I agree with that argument you just made, although it's very scary and, and wonderful because obviously you can also compare two worlds where everyone gets the superintelligence at once, where because we're mature and we understand well how to do it and have just been deciding not to do it, versus a world where someone gets it first and others get it later. With nuclear weapons, one power had them alone for whatever it was, eight or nine years, and it worked. So maybe that's a good precedent for what you've said versus a world where all the powers got them simultaneously, although it's also worked to have many powers with nuclear weapons in convoy and holding each other in check. But that's not what I wanted to get to. I want to get to this question of whether highly secure systems and highly secure decision-making are actually good or bad. So obviously blockchains, as we know, are very big on irrevocability of transactions and high security of the transactions. But irrevocability is a very two-edged sword. 
And I've been wondering about the virtue of this. Other people mentioned this issue that it's pretty clear that the human actors uh, can be fairly corruptible, whether the corrupter is named Adolf or Donald. We've seen instances where you can get lots of people to believe lies. And uh, because they have authority in the system, which in theory, democracy is a system which has checks and balance and powers distributed among the people. But in practice, it often works, but occasionally it doesn't work. If we encode our rules into irrevocable systems, if we make them highly secure, because of our ignorance today, can we be robust against the new attacks that are discovered in the future, which those new attacks exploit our ignorance of the past, but also exploit the high security of the system? So there is no way to revoke or change. Uh, an example would be uh, the Dow hack from many years ago. That was only fixed by a, a massive agreement to just completely rewrite the block. Uh, if you're in a world where that sort of massive rewrite of the blockchain isn't a practical solution, haven't you actually made yourself more vulnerable to attack by being secure? Okay. Everything is dual use. For every technological element, we can fairly easily look at it and come up with hypothetical ways in which it makes us both more secure and less secure. And due to our general ignorance, we don't know for any one of these, as well as for them in combination, whether they will actually be of net benefit. What we can do is look at the, is get a sense of the overall dynamic and take our, and form an estimate as to whether this is a technology that overall tends to make us more secure or less secure and help bias the system so that better outcomes we feel are more likely. So the, on the irrevocability specifically, as I'm a big fan of split contracts and many of the people working with me on smart contracts were also the innovators that created the first split contract smart contracting system, which is Amex, the American Information Exchange. The split contract is a mixture of the characters we associate with current prose contracts and smart contracts. And contracts have, current real-world contracts have many complex, subtle elements to them that we don't know how to automate, and many elements to them that are explicitly calls for human judgment and that therefore are Every Anytime a contract refers to uh, good faith or best efforts. It's inherently bringing in a non-automatable criteria. So a split contract is a smart contract architecture in which part of the terms are expressed in code and enforced by automatic means. And part of the contract is expressed by in prose meant to be interpreted by human arbiters. And that one of the moves available to the participants of the contract is to throw the outcome of the contract into dispute, such that once it's in dispute, the dispute then gets settled according to the pre-negotiated arbitration arrangement of human beings forming judgments looking at the pros contract. The what I'm pointing out is our, our past world is entirely a pros contract. It's entirely yes, yes. human judgment. The famous statement that the Constitution is not a suicide pact is, is one example of that that says even the Constitution 
is interpretable. And if it looks like it's going to kill us, we can undo it, was at least what that Supreme Court justice was saying. It's a dangerous statement to make, but it's a statement that's been made. In a world of automated security, you are creating suicide pacts. So all institutions, including automated ones, only survive in the given a mutual expectation that they will be treated as something legitimate, that, that the outcome of them will be taken seriously. And the forking of the Ethereum blockchain in light of the DAO bug demonstrates that and demonstrates why it's important to put much friction in the way. The Constitution can be completely rewritten with a constitutional convention, but the Constitution was purposely created. You can think of the Constitutional Convention as a forking event, but the Constitution was created to make such massive interventions extremely hard, to put much friction in the By way. the way, anything done at a Constitutional Convention still has to be ratified by three-fourths of the states, so it's not as easy as you say. But anyway, go on. I think that's the point I'm making, is that, there, is that it's very hard to fork the Constitution, to, com to, to engage in the the move that we'd rewrite it and amending the constitution, which is much less than a fork, but still a major intervention, there's also purposely much friction in the way. Any blockchain only has significance in the world to the degree that enough participants in the world have a mutual expectation that the continued computation by that blockchain will be taken seriously, will represent uh, yes, some uh, sex Sorry, again, and, and we should get on the other thing, but I want to add the comment that we're talking about powerful armed superintelligent AIs here. We're not talking about consensus blockchains. We're talking about both. Yeah. And, and yes, we're talking about a world in which the participants in the system include the superintelligent AIs, and the issue of mutual expectation of legitimacy is among the participants at the time, which is both humans and the AIs. The question is, can we build institutions? Can we build an institutional framework such that the joint participants can, can continue to sustain well enough constructed institutions that they're worthy of the joint expectation of continued legitimacy. And when they lose that legitimacy, they lose their significance in the world. Unless they're armed. But anyway, let's go on to the next question. Okay, we have so many more. Next one up, we have Blake. Hello. Thank you for the great uh, talk. So my question is around the relationship between securing computer systems and securing human systems. Now, I think I heard you make a claim that this growing centralization of power and surveillance state that's due to parties taking advantage of insecurable infrastructure. And my first question is, were you talking just about computer infrastructure or were you talking about this broader societal institutional infrastructure? I was focused in specifically on the computer infrastructure to make the point in the talk. But let me say more broadly that, again, all technological advances dual use and that the advances in technology, in particular computer technology, amplify both the dynamics in the world that cause centralization of power, like the surveillance state, and the dynamics in the world that bring about a decentralization of power, 
like the internet and modern cryptography. And we're in a race. And the way we won the race on modern crypto on cryptography during the what's known as the first crypto wars. Well, how did these the cypherpunks with no with almost no resources win over the intelligence agencies? And it's by building and deploying systems that are adopted that form facts on the ground that are sufficiently hard to remove that the adversaries, those who would central who would use technology to centralize power, find themselves simply having to live with the facts on the ground and deal with it rather than being able to overcome it. So most of all, I want this to be a call to action to build such technologies of freedom, to build out the decentralizing capacity of these technologies, establish them on, as facts on the ground, and use that as the best counter to the other side of the race, though it, those who would use these advancing technologies to centralize power. All right. I think the, yeah, we'll move on. The connection between securing computer systems and securing human systems, I see the relationship, but they still seem a little far away. And so I'm just looking more for how do we bring those closer together? Yeah, we can move on. So I, I actually do, I do want to comment on that. The one of, one pole of the original cypherpunk ideology that's still quite prevalent in the world of crypto is a Galt's Gulch kind of extreme that I don't share, which is we simply build this new world of crypto that's incorruptible and we ignore the, the current real world of jurisdictional law and we just build out this new pure world and we move into it and then the old world becomes irrelevant. I don't think that's I don't think that's going to happen and I don't think it's a good way to pursue the goals that I have in mind. I think that this new system has to grow up within the world that we have and the and that the jurisdictional legal systems and these rule of law like systems that we're building on the web are going to interact and mutually constrain each other and the system that we that grows up out of that is going to grow up as a result of this interaction and compromise and mutual constraint. And I think altogether that's good. So with one uh, minute left, I just wanted to point out to people uh, perhaps like a few kind of like bits and pieces to find more. So the first one is the Norm Hardy Prize that you had mentioned uh, earlier in your talk. So if people are interested in finding out more about that and perhaps applying to the Norm Hardy Prize, and that's on our website under prizes, and you can read a little bit more here. And then secondly, the Substack book is the book that goes into more depth into a few of the points that Mark has made here, including the computer security one, including the split contract one, and many of the, many of the other points. And so that's on Substack, and it's available for free. And I know that we're on time, but I just wanted, if you could summarize crisply, is there anything in particular that you want people to do after today you know if there was a call to action or something that you where you just like if we just did a little bit more of that we'd be nudging in a better direction what would that be so this will be largely restating it but to sum up uh, the call to action is to build out technologies of freedom to build out systems that cope with the growing dangers by setting divergent interests by creating architectures in which divergent interests find themselves in opposition to each other, both in order 
for them to hold each other in check and for them to create the incentives to cooperate uh, and to establish facts on the ground of decentralizing technologies that can win the race against those who would use those same technologies to amplify the centralizing dangers, like modern security, sur surveillance states. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks for all your great questions. I'm so sorry we didn't get to all of them, I'm sure. We could have done this for a few more hours. And I hope it wasn't the last thing that we talk about this. I'm sure, in fact, it isn't. I think we have another seminar coming up in a few days. Thanks a lot for joining everyone. Thanks, Mark, for a great talk. And I was happy to see you very soon. Have a good one, everyone. Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Fawcett Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date or visit Fawcett.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations, so please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>